We have come to the end of our series on the final days of Jesus' life. Over the last few weeks, we've covered the anointing at Bethany, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the washing of the disciples' feet at the Last Supper, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. And there are so many episodes from the last days of Jesus' life that we could have studied. But there will be other opportunities. Uh, we will be able to look at those at another time. And nothing prevents any of us from reading it for ourselves, even if we're not doing it together as a group right now. But tonight is going to be the last of this set of six events, and that will be the Great Commission given to the church by Jesus Christ. Let us read Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says these words to his disciples in Galilee. This is part of the sequence of events. Remember, he told them, I uh, told one of the women to tell the disciples to go ahead into Galilee and he would meet them there. So they left Jerusalem, went to Galilee. Jesus appeared to them several times. Remember on the lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee, Jesus appeared to them on the shore. That happened in the Gospel of John. And then they came back to Jerusalem. And when they were on the Mount of Olives, Jesus ascended and they went into the city for Pentecost. So this story, according to Matthew, takes place in Galilee, not Jerusalem. And traditionally, this has been understood to happen just before the ascension on the Mount of Olives. The other gospels put their equivalent of the Great Commission at that time. You'll see that this is sort of indefinite, where it says they went to the mountain where Jesus directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. And Jesus came and said to them, it could be that that phrase, and Jesus came, skips over some time. It's really not important, but it was just an interesting note. Uh, because you can assume things when you read your Bible, but it's important to make sure you take the time to look and see what it says. There's no reason to assume he did not give them this commission multiple times. And uh, whatever the case, the final words of Jesus, as recorded in Matthew and in different words in Mark, Luke, and John, just before his ascension, Jesus gave the command to his disciples to go out into the world and make disciples. In essence, to go out by his unlimited authority, and start the church. Everything that came after this, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, the early revival in Jerusalem, the persecutions, the missionary journeys, much later, the cathedrals that were built, the Reformation, even down to us today, it's all bound up in this great commission that Jesus gave them in these verses. With these words, Jesus launched the church. No longer was he going to be on the earth in person, but his body would be the congregation of the church, empowered by his Holy Spirit. And we live now in a world with 2,000 years of church history behind us. What is this thing, the church, that has succeeded Jesus? What is the purpose of the church? What did Jesus tell us to do? Have we done a good job of living up to that? In order to know, we have to understand what Jesus said in these verses. And it is very fortunate that Jesus, with all of his authority, is kind of saying, as king of the world, here's what I tell you to do. It's fortunate that he told us what we were to do after he was gone. Because everyone 
has their own idea of what the church ought to be. And there are countless congregations throughout the world and throughout history, and they're all living out some version of the church. The various churches in Birmingham, well, of course, variations, they have a certain unity of purpose and flavor. Even where there's doctrinal differences, traditional differences, we know what to expect when we walk into most American churches. But when I was in Russia, I stepped into an Eastern Orthodox church during a service, not just for a tour, but during one of their services. First of all, the building was 100 feet high and 1,000 years old. And inside, there was no slide projector. There was no coffee stand. There was nobody handing out bulletins. Instead, I was greeted with the smell of incense, a wall decorated with golden paintings of Jesus and the apostles, and a casket with glass on the sides where you could look in and see the bones of a dead saint. The ministers were not wearing suits. They weren't even wearing Hawaiian shirts. They were wearing long black robes and turbans with long gray beards. There's a little bit of a difference there. Now, those are mostly aesthetic differences, right? Most of that is, is superficial. But I think you understand the point I'm trying to make. How are we to evaluate what is and is not acceptable in the church? Why are we here in the first place? People have written books and dissertations on this subject. Every congregation has a mission statement. Every seminary has a statement of faith. And everybody seems to feel free to weigh in with their own opinion. Even politicians and celebrities and all the wise sages of social media have very strong opinions on what the church ought to be. But I'm only interested in what one person had to say, and that is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church. As he says in verse 18 in this passage, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not evenly distributed among all of you, so take some polls and figure it out. It's all been given, he said, to me. This is his church. We are his successors. I think it is only fair to let him tell us what the church is and what our mission ought to be. In verses 19 and 20 of this passage, Jesus tells us to do four things. There are four verbs, four action words, if you remember your grammar, in the Great Commission. Only one of these verbs in the Greek language is an imperative. The other three are participles or verbal nouns. They describe how we are to go about the main imperative. You remember that an imperative is a command. Only one of those verbs is a command verb. The other three are participles, which describe what goes on alongside that imperative. All three of them are important, but they are only to be done in service to the main command, make disciples. For some people, they have allowed the church to be out of balance, skip the main mission and focused instead on one of these things that are supposed to be supportive of the main goal. For some people, the mission of the church is to go. It's a charitable mission. That's good, but it's insufficient. For others, the mission of the church is teaching. It's a theological mission. That's better, but it's still insufficient. For others, the mission of the church is baptizing. It's a social or communal mission. And this is very, very close. But on its own, it's insufficient. The mission of the church, according to the text and language of the Great Commission, is to make disciples. That is the commandment of the Great Commission. The goal that brings those other things and unites them into true biblical evangelism. So let's work our way through these and see how three of those are good but they're not the main thing. And one of them is the main thing. And when you do that, it brings all of the others together. 
The first word we read, the first verb in the text of the Great Commission is go. This is paruthentes in Greek. And as I have already explained, this is a participle. It is subservient to the main imperative. It might literally be translated going or as you go would be a good way to put that. Jesus says that our mission, true evangelism, will involve a lot of going. In Acts 1.8, just before his ascension, Jesus explained to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus mentions here in verse 19, we are to go to all nations. In fact, that verse I read a minute ago, that's a pretty good outline for the book of Acts. The church begins in Jerusalem, expands to Samaria by chapter 8, and it ends with Paul in Rome on a mission to take the gospel to all nations. We are here today in a nation farther away than any apostle even knew existed. The church is to be a going church. Now, there was a time where the church forgot this and did not think it needed to be going anywhere. When William Carey, who is the famous British missionary to India, in the 1700s. He was seeking support, financial support for his journey. A wizened old man told him during the service, young man, sit down. If God sees fit to convert the heathen, he will do so without your help or mine. The very idea of a missionary was foreign to the people. And there are still those that want to gripe about missions, talking about colonialism or cultural imperialism. I'm only interested in what Jesus had to say. And he told us to go. Taken very simply, when Jesus said to be going, it means to take the life that Jesus taught us to live and go live it somewhere else. While in our culture, the teachings of Jesus are respected and even imitated outside of the church, this is not the case everywhere. Remember, Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, Luke 6, 27 through 28. It is nothing but plain ignorance to assert that that kind of love is valued in every culture. It's not. We've gotten so used to those things because the gospel's been around in our part of the world for so long, we assume everybody believes that. It's not true. It is as radical to the Islamic, Hindu, Buddhist, and secular nations now as it was when it first came to the Romans and the Germanic tribes all those centuries ago. Jesus said, go live like I taught you in a place where they do not know about me yet. This is why missions work, as it's called, has such an emphasis on charity and good works. Digging wells, providing medical care, distributing food and clothing to the needy. All of these things are wonderful. When Paul discussed his ministry with the apostles, they approved all his doctrine. Only, Paul says in Galatians 2.10, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. From the very beginning, the church has been going around the world, living out the love of God in Jesus' name. People can complain all they want about Christians, but when this pandemic began, it was Christian organizations that sprang into action to provide help and love in Jesus' name. However, while charity is a good thing, and while we would be wrong to neglect it, charity is not the mission of the church. Remember, go is one of the participles in this passage. It is subservient to the main mission. We should be creative and enthusiastic as we try to live out the life of Christ around the world, but we must never let charity drive the bus. A church that only goes, let's say a church that focuses exclusively on charitable works. They might do a lot of good, 
but they will not live up to the commission of Jesus Christ. When Jesus fed the 5,000 by multiplying the loaves and the fishes, they followed him. That big crowd of people followed him. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. But following that request in John chapter 6, Jesus proceeded to give one of the most difficult teachings of his ministry, telling them that if they were hungry, they could eat his flesh and drink his blood. Well, doesn't that seem like slamming an open door? No, because that wasn't the purpose of his ministry. He refused to let good deeds become the main thing. The same reason why he would try to enter towns quietly and tell people he had healed in especially miraculous ways to keep it to themselves. Because if the request for healing became overwhelming, he would have no chance to proclaim the message that he had come to proclaim. When the church makes charity its primary mission, it begins to view other foundational principles as inconvenient. Christian charities, often of necessity, have broad doctrinal positions because they want to attract as many helpers and as much donations as possible. But if the purpose is charity, if that's the main thing, why bother with doctrine at all? Why not let everyone help, even those from another religion? And if the purpose is charity, like if our purpose is digging wells or ending sex trafficking, great things. But if that's our main purpose, why would the church draw extra negative attention to itself by using the name of Jesus? It would be far easier to provide medical care in a Muslim country if you did not do so as a Christian. Better yet, if you converted to Islam. Do you see the problem here? Ministries and churches that make charity the primary goal rather than an important secondary goal have a tragic pattern of abandoning sound doctrine along the way, minimizing the gospel and in some cases even renouncing Jesus Christ. Today, there are so many groups that began as Christian ministries that have long since abandoned those roots. In some cases, Unbelievers will volunteer or unbelievers will even try to be ordained into the ministry, not because they have a commitment to the gospel, but because they see the church as an effective vehicle for good deeds. And then at some point they take the wheel and they turn it away from what God told us to do. Consider the Red Cross or the YMCA or to a lesser extent, the Salvation Army. These were groups that began as evangelistic outreaches, but have long since made the transition to charitable programs. Even if there is still nominal belief in Christ, that's not what everybody knows about them, is it? Any church that does not build itself upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins is no true church. True evangelism requires more than that, more than just charity. Now, the wrong thing to do, <laughs> the wrong thing to do would be to forsake worldwide obedience and forsake practical love because some people have done it poorly. Charity is a good thing. It's part of the Great Commission, but on its own, it's insufficient. Christ's church is to be a going church that takes the love of Christ around the world. We ourselves have strong connections with ministries in Haiti, Nepal, Russia, Costa Rica. This very church, Calvary Chapel Trustville, began when I obeyed the command to go from my home and come down here. Even though I did not leave my country, it was the same thing. And when we have established ourselves further as a church, we will go to the ends of the earth too. But always you must remember that charity is not the mission. It is in service to the main mission. Now the third participle in the text, but the second one we're going to look at, is the word teaching. This is the Greek word didaskantes. It's where we get the word didactic from. And as with the word go from the previous verse, this is a participle. It is subservient to the main verb of the Great Commission. The church of Jesus Christ is to be a teaching church. 
It has become fashionable to say that the Bible is not all about having right doctrine. It's about loving people. That is wildly inaccurate. <laughs> and ironically enough, somebody who says that shows that they have not had enough teaching in their life. As Paul awaited his final execution in Rome, he wrote to his young protege, Timothy, and charged him this in 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. This is one of the last things Paul wrote to this young man. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The New Testament is full of passages like that, commanding men to maintain the teaching, especially towards the end, a lot of the smaller general epistles like Jude and Second Peter. Many of the epistles were written with the explicit purpose of establishing sound doctrine or rebuking false doctrine. I think of Galatians right off the top of my head. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1 calls us stewards of the mysteries of God. We have the history in our Bibles of God's dealing with Israel, the prophecies, the Psalms of the Old Testament, the gospel of Jesus, all the instructive letters of the apostles. There's a lot to know as a Christian, and it's all important. More than that, we have the grand tradition of godly men who have studied and interpreted and systematized the truth of God's word that's being handed down to us. Teaching all of this is of profound importance. In fact, Paul required that anybody in any leadership capacity in the church needed to be able to teach. First, there's the teaching of sound doctrine. The pastors and the teachers in the church are to instruct the people about what they believe. And second is the correction of false doctrine. The devil is always at work to undermine the church, and we've got to be on guard against that. And hopefully by doing that first thing, laying a solid foundation of sound doctrine, the teacher can make his job of correction easier when the trouble actually comes. Jesus explains in verse 20 here, we are to teach all that he has commanded us. Paul said to the Ephesians in Acts 20 verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Nothing is to be left out when we teach. Our strategy here in obeying that commandment is to teach through the Bible verse by verse. All sound doctrine comes from the word. And while there are great helps and great resources and great Bible studies and great books, we are kept plenty busy teaching the scriptures in this church. We've been taking a little break from that as we've been celebrating some of these holidays, but we're going to get right back to it on Sunday. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 8 is our model for how we teach. It says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly and gave the sense so the people understood the reading. By teaching the whole Bible, the church is not only inoculated against false teaching, but I'm teaching you to search the word for yourself, and that way you're not dependent upon me or any other teacher for your instruction. However, the church is not an academy. Teaching is not the sole purpose of Christ's church. In this passage, teaching is a subsidiary element of the Great Commission in service to the main mission. I love to teach. I love to study. But we must never make theology the drum marshal of the evangelistic parade. A teaching church is good. I would even say that it's better than an exclusively charitable church. But Jesus did not send us out to be professors. A church that has made theology the sole purpose of its existence will not be an effective church. And there are churches like this. 
They invest all their time in doctrinal nuance and debate with a high premium on reading and study. Maybe they have no academic pretensions, but they're hammering correct doctrine as they see it week after week after week. Or maybe they do have academic pretensions. They want to be known as intelligent and learned and the smart church. Knowledge puffs up, the Bible says, and that's exactly what happens to academy churches. There are two opposite things that can happen here. First, a church that makes theology the primary goal instead of an important secondary goal becomes angry and feral. <laughs> they turn the guns outward and they make an enemy of anybody that disagrees with them even a little bit. These churches become like YouTube comment sections when they come together. Everybody's angry about something. The first church of the right on. Everybody else must be cast down. These churches shrivel up, shrink into obscurity, and somehow they become proud of the fact that they are isolated from the world and unable to help anyone. The other extreme often happens in Bible colleges and seminaries. Christians who see theology as their sole mandate begin to worship theology as a false god. They spend their lives studying and publishing about the various aspects of Christian teaching. So far, so good. But when they start to get some attention, maybe they win an award for a book they've written, or they get a peer-reviewed article from somebody who's very prestigious, they start to seek for that instead of the truth. They rub shoulders with other academics, with big names and tenure, and they start to see themselves as academics first rather than Christians. They become loose, so loose in their doctrinal standards because they're so open-minded that they can't even correct themselves anymore. Before long, somebody with wacky views and a strong personality shows up and he causes the church or the school or whatever to lurch away from the Bible into pure speculation. They become the parrots of the world. All they can do is tell you what people are saying these days. This has been the story of almost every Christian college and university in the world, from Harvard and Princeton all the way down. Both those schools and several others began as seminaries for pastors. Jesus said to the people in John 5, 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. This tells us that it is possible to be very familiar with Christian teaching, even to be a Christian teacher, and yet be far away from Jesus Christ. By contrast, the blind man that Jesus healed had only this to say in John 9, 25, Whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This guy knew nothing of the debates of the time. He was familiar with none of the academic literature, but he knew Jesus, and that was enough. Theology is important, but it makes for an insufficient foundation. And once again, the wrong thing would be to abandon theology altogether. And some have done exactly that. We're just going to live for Jesus and not worry about doctrine. Inevitably, they drive off a cliff because they have no compass to guide them. We will teach all the way through the Bible here, and then we will teach through it again. We will address dangerous errors. We will thoughtfully consider the words of godly men that have gotten it right. And I'll be honest, because theology and teaching is such a good thing, it is a real temptation to put it on the throne. But our mission as Christians is not theology and teaching. It is only to be in service to the main mission of evangelism. And the third participle in these verses, the second one listed, is baptizantes or baptizing the church is to be a baptizing church we are to be making converts as you've probably figured out by now this is also subservient to the main imperative of the three this is the one that is closest to the real mission 
And at times, it can even be mistaken for real evangelism. But as we will see, it too is to be in service of the actual goal. We read several times in the book of Acts, something like what we see here in Acts 2.47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Baptism, as you know, is the Christian rite of initiation. Making converts, adding people to the church is a worthy endeavor and one that we should be about at all times. I, I tend to laugh at those who want to rail against large churches because the early church began on its first day with 3,000 people. And just a few weeks later, it grew by thousands more. Jesus himself attracted large crowds of people and the disciples, according to John 4.1, baptized all of them. If we are doing the work well, we should expect that souls are going to be added to the church. When I was in seminary, all of the training was geared towards ministry in a large megachurch. All the books we read, the strategies we learned, all the experts that came in to speak, they were all training us to build and pastor megachurches. I find it hilarious that only a year or two later I came back and I was on the advisory board and we were going over the curriculum and things like that. And the flavor in the wind was the micro church movement. You heard of this? Churches were going to be dismantling and operating smaller on purpose. Uh, about home fellowship size was where everybody was going to go. That trend, as far as I can tell, has not caught on. True, there are challenges with large churches and maybe those who are into the micro church thing, they're trying to address that. We even see the problems in the book of Acts. But size in and of itself is not a bad thing. And I'm sitting here telling you that as the pastor of a very small church. So you know that I'm not trying to defend myself. It'd be really easy to point the guns out, right? And say, well, they're not as good as us because we're small. Size is really not something we're worried about. But we do want to see people added to the church. I remember someone, love this story, asked the panel at a pastor's conference why they could not seem to gain traction as a church and grow. Even though they'd been at it for many years, they seemed like they had plateaued and couldn't move past that. Two pastors gave very great biblical responses, the kind of response that I would give. And then good old David Guzik said this, in all kindness and love, he said, you're wondering why your church can't grow after a long time? Maybe you're weird. Now we laugh at that, but he does have a point. There is a tendency for some churches, especially small churches, so picking on us here, there's a tendency for some churches to become weird. And I'm not talking about being aberrant in doctrine or toxic in the leadership. Those are all bad, but just weird. Maybe the worship is a niche genre that, that nobody knows. Maybe the decorations in the church, they all have nice sentimental value, but it really makes everybody else feel like the place looks unkempt and a little shabby. Maybe there are little inside jokes and traditions that just fill everything they do. And everybody who goes loves that, but the people that are visiting just feel like outsiders. We should always be striving to take a look at ourselves and make sure we're not putting up extra barriers to people coming that have nothing to do with Jesus. We're never going to budge on doctrine, but if there's silly little things that don't matter to us, but they matter to somebody else, maybe we should take a look. When it comes to the size of the church, we don't stress about being small, but our attitude should be the more the merrier. We should expect the Lord to add to the church and we want to make sure we're not putting any roadblocks in the way that are unnecessary. And you see how Jesus tells us, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are bringing these people into fellowship with God, and therefore into fellowship with us. The church is one big family. Even the world can see the value in the community of the church. Sometimes it's the only value they can see, but they can see it. 
Having a big group of people that are all aiming towards the same goal can be a great motivator in a person's life and it can have a serious impact on cities and nations. But, as was true with charity and theology, the goal of the church is not community. Our purpose is not to be building a community, even a wholesome family-friendly one. And as I said before, this aspect is very close to the main goal, but it is not the main goal. Even making converts and growing the church is not the ultimate mission of Christ's church. This may be splitting hairs, but I think there's a reason Jesus said it this way. When the crowds were massing around Jesus, being baptized by his disciples and swearing to follow him everywhere he went, the disciples were ecstatic. But Jesus, it says in John 2.24, had a different attitude. It says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. How many times did Jesus teach us? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Think of the parable of the sower and the rocky soil and the thorny soil. Think of the wheat and the tares. Jesus prophesied that the church would grow all right. Many, many people would be baptized and initiated. But he knew that there would be bad fish among the good and wolves among the sheep. That is why our goal cannot only be adding to our numbers and making converts. The church is not just to be a society or a community. A church that is only focused on building a large community will do many things right. These are often very hardworking churches. They strategize and they plan and they test ideas. They involve as many people in the church as possible to help. They have beautiful buildings. They have dynamic worship music. Their websites are the envy of just about everybody. And none of that is wrong. The Lord is worthy of all of those things. The problem is that they can be done at the expense of depth and vitality. A community, so to speak, church, will focus everything on building up the organization, especially on the front end. Much of the funding and the energy goes into the experience of the visitor and streamlining the process of getting them committed. But because of this, the preaching is aimed at a lower level and the people do not grow. Little attention is given to doctrinal instruction or personal accountability. And many troublemakers and hurting people can hide in the ranks because there's not really a way for them to be found. Everything becomes based on market research and technique rather than the gospel and the Bible. And there are leaders who can be allowed to take prominent places in these churches because of business acumen, not because of their spiritual maturity. Now I say to you that all of those things can be overcome. We should not throw out a lot of great things that we could learn from some of the most rapidly growing churches in the world. But we must never let the goal of a great big community drive the bus. I'm not even going to get into those churches that only want to build one kind of community out of a single social status or a single common interest, these boutique churches. We want to be baptizing, making converts, growing the church, but it's not the most important thing. It is only partial evangelism. The mission of the church is not to baptize as many people into the community as possible. And I know that you know that the American church in particular is held under the sway of this insufficient emphasis. Bad? No. Insufficient? Yes. I have no specific group or congregation in mind because the problem is so widespread. May the Lord deliver us all from these things. Lesser things. So then, the mission of the church is not charity. We're not only to go and do good works. It's not theology. We're not only to be teaching. And it's not even to build a great community. We ought to be baptizing, but there is more. All of these things are good. And we should do all of them. If you're taking away from this, I'm saying that we shouldn't be baptizing people. You are, you've got the wrong idea. <laughs> 
But in the text of these verses, those three things are participles attendant to the main verb. There are four verbs in this passage and only one of them is an imperative, the command. Everything else is to be in service of this goal. And that word is matetusate, make disciples. We have been sent out by Jesus to make disciples. Going, baptizing, teaching, make disciples. As you go, as you teach, as you baptize, make disciples. This is true evangelism, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We use that word evangelism and we tend to associate it only with making converts, as we've just discussed. But that's only the first step in making a disciple. The word evangelize in Greek comes from the prefix you, which means good, the word angelos, which means messenger, it's where we get the word angel from, and the ending, idzo, which we transliterate to eyes. So if you want to put that way too literally, evangelize means to good news eyes people. <laughs> Not just the proclamation of the message, but the transformation of an entire life in response to the good news about Jesus. We are to go out and gospelize people, cities, and the world. And the way we do that is to make disciples. To make a disciple goes beyond initiation. It means to take responsibility for bringing somebody into Christian maturity. A disciple is somebody who disciplines, related word, disciplines themselves to follow a certain person or a way of life. It is a lifelong process to be a disciple. And our job as Christians is to cultivate that process in other people. Paul said in Ephesians 4.13 that the leaders of the church should be training and teaching the congregation, listen, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This cannot be done in an afternoon or over a few weeks. It is like taking on an exchange student or adopting a child for the purpose of producing a mature, self-sustaining disciple. Jesus gave us the example through the way he made his 12 disciples. In Mark 3, verses 14 and 15, it says, He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. few things here. He called them first to be with him. They were to be around him all the time, so that they could learn by watching him and interacting with him how they ought to be. This is one reason among many why we come together as a congregation and ought to spend time with one another often. It's great to be taught the principles, but we need to see it done. We need someone who can tell us simply, do it this way. I needed that in my life growing up. I, I still need it today. It used to frustrate me when people would tell me to do something, but they couldn't tell me how. So you got to be good with your money. Okay, how do I do that? Well, just be responsible. That, that doesn't tell me anything. Tell me what to do. Well, you've got to find your own way. I hated being told that. It's like, tell me your way and I'll start with that. That's what making a disciple is. And he chose them second that he might send them out. This was the training part of it. There was always a goal. He didn't want them to remain in infancy as disciples, but to be able to go out and do what he did. We do not gather disciples around us as trophies. Look at all these disciples I've made. But we release them to do the work. This means they are given real chances both to fail and to succeed so that the teacher can help them do better next time. Paul gives us another great example. He made disciples all around the Mediterranean Sea. And reading through Acts, you get the impression of Paul that he moved around a lot and he moved quickly. 
This is true in one sense, but the fast-paced narrative of the story makes it seem faster than it was. Paul stayed for a year and a half in Corinth. He stayed for three years in Ephesus. He wrote them letters. He would return to these churches to check on their progress. He was willing to stay as long as it took to enable a church to stand on their own two feet. When he was run out of Thessalonica after only a few short weeks, didn't get a chance to do this, he sent Timothy back to check on them and sent him a letter and he said this, We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That's discipleship. 1 Thessalonians 3.10 He set an example by the way he trained up other men to do what he did. Timothy, Silas, Titus, Aristarchus, Epaphroditus, Luke. They traveled with him. They learned from him. They served alongside him. And eventually he sent them out to do it on their own. He taught them to know God, not to rely on his instructions. He was not just making converts. Paul was making disciples. Jesus was able to send out the 12. Paul was able to send out Timothy to Ephesus and Titus to Crete and all the others. They did not feel the need to do everything themselves. Jesus and Paul, they did not feel the need to do everything themselves. They focused on building up good people who could work alongside them. Our attitude is to be like the attitude of Jesus we see in John 14, 12. He said, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. Of course, there he's talking about the coming of the spirit, but the attitude is important. The goal of making a disciple is to Build up somebody who is as mature as you in Christ Jesus. Somebody who is as capable in ministry as you are, or more so. It is the gospelization of a person's life. We are to oversee the permeation of the Christ life into every aspect of a person. This is not just a mission for pastors and apostles. This is the Great Commission. It applies to everyone. I have learned in my years of ministry that this is the way to do it. It is far better to focus on a few who are absolutely committed than to try to drag forward those who are reluctant. No matter how capable a person is or incapable, no matter what their background is, if they are willing to leave all to serve Christ, God can make a disciple out of them. This is not to neglect everyone else, but it is the best strategy to reach everybody else. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. Do you see that pattern? He's saying, I taught you, you teach somebody else who then can teach somebody else. Now he says, I can move on to make other disciples and trust that you are continuing the process. When I have trained up two or three or 12 solid disciples, I have just multiplied myself. Now there are other people that can do the same thing just as well as me. This is the only biblical way to build up a church. Not just through adding more people to fill the seats, but multiplying disciples who can make other disciples. This is the imperative of the Great Commission. Make disciples. To invest in the lives of those who are saved in order to raise them up to maturity in Christ. This is harder. It takes longer. And it does not make for flashy results. But it's what Jesus did. It's what the 12 did. It's what Paul did. It's what Pastor Chuck Smith did. And it is what our Bible tells us we are to do as well. The mission of the church is evangelism. Real, disciple-making, gospelization of one life after another. Now that we know that this is the goal, we are able to take those other three elements and incorporate them into their proper place. If we know that the goal of real evangelism is to make disciples who make disciples, then these other things start to come alive. 
We never let them drive the bus, but we do them out of obedience in service to the main goal. When we put it all together, that's the Great Commission. As we seek to make disciples, we are to be going. We are to spread out throughout the whole world and live out the love of Jesus. Now we know what all that charity is for now. We don't just dig wells or provide vaccines because it's nice to do. We do it as part of the evangelistic mission. Consider your good works like Jesus' miracles. First, they were a demonstration of sincere love and a desire to help. Second, they were to adorn the message so that people would listen. And third, they were to show the disciples what it really looks like to love people. Our mission's work does loving things out of real love, out of compassion, to give a platform for the gospel, to earn a right to be heard, you could say, and to demonstrate to those that are a part of the church what the love of Christ looks like. This way, the works have their proper place, and we're not in danger of becoming just another humanitarian agency. As we seek to make disciples, we are to be teaching. There is a worldwide drought of the knowledge of God, and we have the solution right here in our hands. But now we know that teaching is not a goal unto itself. We teach in order to make disciples. We never ought to hoard knowledge for ourselves. We want to teach the whole counsel of God to every Christian. And we never want to patronize those that we think are somehow beneath us. They're too stupid. They're too backward. They're too untrained. They're too sinful. We give them everything from the famous Bible stories to the hypostatic union. It's all important. We are trying to make self-sustaining disciples. We don't want to hitch them up to our wagon. We seek only to attach them to the word of God. That way they'll stay faithful long after you're gone because they won't need you anymore. They'll have Christ. We are fishers of men who then teach the fish to fish for other fish. Do you get it? We are fishers of fishers of men. That's the goal. And as we seek to make disciples, we are to be number three, baptizing. Like the great examples given to us in the book of Acts, we make an appeal to the souls of all men. We're not just focusing inward, we're focusing outward, proclaiming the message and trying to add to our numbers in the best possible sense. We're not looking for a higher number on the attendance chart, but we know that each new visitor is a potential new disciple who can make more disciples. This also affects the methods that you're going to use. If your goal is making disciples and not just having a big number, you're going to try to bring them in differently. Because we're not looking for a quick hand in the air. We're looking for lifelong commitment. The ministry of men like Billy Graham is to go around the world scattering seeds. Our job is to take those new little saplings and cultivate them in the church so that they become mighty oaks with seeds of their own someday. Do you see how understanding the mission, making disciples, how it makes all those other things come alive? They have purpose. They have life now. Allowing the mission of the church to be out of balance is so inferior to the actual plan of Jesus. That only makes sense, right? He knew it would be effective. He knew it would bear lasting fruit. Jesus helped a lot of people practically, but where were they in the upper room on Pentecost? He taught a lot of people. He even baptized a lot of people, or his disciples did. But when the Spirit came, there were only 120 people out of the thousands who had been shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday. Who were they? Jesus' disciples. And his disciples endured to make more disciples, who made more disciples until here we are today, making disciples. This is real evangelism. This is gospelization. This is how you take back what the devil has stolen. When you make a disciple, you're not just getting somebody to switch religions. You are helping them to reclaim their passions, their relationships, their priorities for the kingdom of Christ. You're helping them to know God. 
Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then when he sent us out, he said, here's how you do it. Make disciples. You know why I love that verse? Gates are defensive. Gates don't attack anybody. <laughs> gates don't march on the city. An army marches on the gates. And that metaphor that Christ gave, the church is on the offensive, taking back what the devil has stolen. I had a professor who used to say, kick some gate. We'd send us out there, now go out there and kick some gate. Go kick down the gates of hell. And the way we do that is by making disciples. Slowly but surely, we secure each new beachhead as we storm the gates of hell. During the Vietnam War, due to the astonishing need of new recruits, the U.S. Army drastically reduced the duration of basic training. It became much shorter. The drill sergeants were at a loss for what to do. They knew that effective soldiers could not be churned out quickly. And some people have credited that to our ineffectiveness in that conflict. A similar attempt was made during the recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, when the Department of Defense, very impressed with the performance of the special forces units, they ordered each branch of the military to make more special forces. They demanded that more candidates be approved and their requirements be lowered in order to produce more rangers and elite recon units. Only the Navy SEALs refused to lower their standards. They knew that to reduce the requirements might result in more people with the title of SEAL, but the quality of each man and therefore of each team would suffer, jeopardizing the effectiveness of the whole operation. In the same way, Evangelism does not stop when a person bows their heads, closes their eyes, and comes down the aisle. That is only the first step. Evangelism is the act of making disciples, training new elite soldiers to fight in the battle for the Lord's army. We cannot do this task quickly. It is a lifelong process in which we all must participate. You are not just a spectator or a client or, God forbid, a customer of the church. You are a disciple of Jesus. You have committed your life to learn what he taught and to live how he lived, to have a relationship with him in a personal way. That simplifies things very quickly, doesn't it? Perhaps that needs to affect the way that you live your Christian life. You should always have someone more mature than you in the faith who can instruct you and make you a better disciple. Going it alone is a terrible idea. Don't make it your own. There's no verse in the Bible that says, go out there and make your faith your own. It says, learn from people who know better than you. Find someone who can show you what to do. If you don't know how to pray, find somebody who knows how to pray and say, show me. You don't know how to tithe. If you don't know how to study your Bible, find someone who does and ask them to teach you, to disciple you. We've made a verb out of that now, to disciple you, as we say. And then you need to find somebody who is less mature in their faith than you and make a disciple out of them. I can hear some of y'all right now that you feel unqualified to do that. Not yet, someday, but not yet. Listen, we learn by doing. You may only know 10 things about the gospel. Okay, find somebody who only knows nine things about the gospel and teach them number 10. This is how the church grows. Not just numerically, but how its roots grow deeper and deeper until the branches are strong and heavy with fruit, able to withstand any onslaught in the power of God's spirit. The mission of the church is evangelism. Never let anybody tell you different. You have it right there in front of you. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and this is how he told us to do it. We exist to make disciples who make disciples. We are fishers of fishers of men. 
helping people through the full gospelization of their lives in submission to Christ. Everything else is inferior to this. We are to be going and showing the love of Jesus in practical ways, but always with the goal of making disciples. We are to be teaching, instructing people in the truth of God and his word, but always with the goal of making disciples. And we are to be baptizing new converts and adding to the church, but always with the goal of making disciples. Those other things are dangerous if they're allowed to take first place. But when they're properly situated in their supporting role, they become invaluable. If we fail to make disciples, if we settle into an inferior game plan as a church, the souls of the Christians around us will grow thin. If we do not introduce them to Christ as an ongoing relationship, if we do not show them how to follow sound doctrine, they're going to get hungry for something real. This is how borrowed spirituality enters the church. When God's people are looking to the high places and the temples of the world to feed their souls because they're not getting it where they ought to be getting it. If we fail to produce sheep that look like sheep, then there might be people who are there in the flock who feel secure when they should not. And it will be easier for wolves to sneak in and abuse the flock. We must do it God's way. And Jesus ends his great commission by saying, Behold, I am with you always. If we go about the business of the church his way, Jesus will be with us. How foolish of us would it be to ditch the mission of Christ and then holler at him to keep up and bless us? Lord, that's a great idea, but this is what I'm going to do. Keep up. You're supposed to be blessing me. No, no way. Let's do it his way. We are to be evangelists on a mission to make disciples, going, teaching, and baptizing. With all authority in heaven and on earth, that is what Jesus has told us to do. So let's be about the work of making disciples who will make disciples. Because if we do, then Jesus will be with us, he said, even to the end of the age.